So we begin a new series. I'm glad it's a little warmer. Is it unbelievable? Tomorrow it's going to be like 50. Is that incredible? It's like a 100 degree swing from Wednesday, which is pretty unbelievable in itself. So today uh, we, we looked at a passage, the first eight verses of the passage really kind of focus on the, the narration of the story to give us the kind of the gist of the story. Verses 9 through 13 is really the application. And it's kind of an interesting passage to begin with because it starts off, if you have a header in your dictionary, it usually says the parable of the dishonest steward or dishonest manager, right? Sort of a negative twist on what we should learn. And it's kind of interesting because in Scripture, we, you know, it, 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 normally there are good examples that we learn from, but I often find that most of the time we learn the most from bad examples, don't we? You know, because in, in, in the way we heed learning is, is that you're either motivated by gain or fear of loss. The, the fear of loss is a much greater motivator for most people. And I, see, I think we see that in the story. It's kind of interesting because um, we talk about a couple things in the story. The manager, the word is steward, right? And the, and, the, and the impression of stewardship in scripture is that you are responsible for resources that are not your own, right? So he worked for the master. So all the master's resources he was in charge of, not just his, you know, his, uh, his uh, goods, but his money, his people, his servants, everything, his estate. This guy was in charge of that particular area. He was really, a, in, a, in other words, a steward or a slave to the master's design and desire for him. And the master entrusted him with all these different things which he misused. The other key word in there where it talks about, uh, in verse 1, is that he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, steward, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. The word there that they utilize for bringing charges against is, the root word is diabolo, which is we get our diabolical. That's where we get the English word diabolical from. And the, the impression there is that it's really meaning to give a report with hostile intent, right? And so that we, we understand that whatever was being brought against them, they weren't being nice about it, and they wanted them out, Right? And so you get to this place where you've got these good and bad examples. And I think, you know, whenever you do anything in business, it always helps to, to, to take a look at both. When you get married, you want to talk to people who've had good marriages, right? But I think you also want to talk to some people who had difficulty in their marriages that overcame it so you can learn from both the good and bad. When I went into business for myself and opened a few pizza places, um, you know, I talked to some people who gave me really good business advice, but I talked to some other people whose business didn't go really well, and I learned a lot of valuable lessons for them. Like one is make sure you start off with the exit plan first. While your relationship's good and there's more money on the line, there's no emotions, make sure you figure out how you're going to get out of the deal so that you still become or stay friends if you're in there with partners that are friends. It turned out to be the best advice I had gotten. So I think sometimes we got to learn from both. And so, and the other thing I think you learn real quick from this passage is, and I think it's really important, is to understand that you've got to be able, when you have problems, and there's always problems. Let me tell you something. Money is a problem. It's probably the biggest problem for most people. How to manage it, how to make it, how to use it appropriately, Right? But here's the thing, the manager kind of figured out what his problem was right away, which is a lot of times in some Bibles it says the, 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 the parable of the shrewd dishonest manager, right? And so when you look at this, he states the problem and he says, hey, listen, I'm too proud to beg and I'm too weak to dig. So you know, what does he do? He uses the master's resources as a tool to meet his own personal needs, 
And see, to me, that's really what it's all about. He used what had been given him for personal gain, and that is the characteristic of all self-centered people. And that is the characteristic of our age. The world is designed to serve self, right? It's all about you. Go for the gusto. Have it your way. When you want it, the way you want it, get it now in five easy payments. The world is good at taking care of of self. And that's the world system. And he paints a contrast here that we see that I think is very interesting. And he says to the stewards, says, hey, you know, he takes the the bill of a hundred oil, jars of oil. And really, that's the equivalent of about 875 gallons of oil. So it's 100 measures of oil is a lot of oil, right? 100 measures of wheat is like 1,000 to 1,200 bushels. So when he starts lopping these things off, it's a lot of money, right? He's taking off a lot of money. Some scholars say, well, that was probably the usury, the tax, the interest, which was against the law and the Jewish law. But what what masters used to do is they'd have their, their stewards charge the the interest, and then if they got caught, it would be plausible deniability, right? Oh, well, I didn't know he was doing it. And that's how they used to get away with that. And so here's this, this guy who thinks really smart. I'm just going to take off. And the beauty of it, and why it's diabolical, it's the perfect way to ensure that he's taken care of, right? Because now he takes these people who owe money to his master, and he sort of makes them co-conspirators, right? Hey, if you, uh, I'm going to take off half of your bill, and if I ever need anything, I know where to go. And they sign on the dotted line. And see, they can't go to the master because they accepted to sort of, you know, take, take money, steal money from him. So now they're locked into the lie, and he's got his way of making sure that he's taken care of, right? So when things go bad, he can walk up to this guy and say, hey, remember I let you off on, you know, 400 jars of oil? I need a place to stay. And they would have to give him a place to stay. It's amazing when you think of the ingenuity of the corrupt people of this world. How many have seen the movie Catch Me If You Can? Have you seen it? Great movie, right? Frank Abagnale is a young man. At 16, he starts to go awry. The movie doesn't show up, but he he got in trouble early on with his dad's credit card. He would use a a car to go back and forth to the school, and he would go to the gas station, charge tires, batteries, and get them from the gas station and sell them back to the gas station on a discount. And his first you know, issue was he had a $3,400 bill at the gas, thing, uh, gas station that Dad had to cover. And then he went on to impersonating uh, air, airline pilots. So the movie doesn't show it all the time, too, but he flew over a million miles, and nobody ever knew he was faking it. Now, he was a young man. This wasn't like a... This is between the ages of 16 and 19 that he's doing all this, right? And then he goes on to impersonate a doctor. I mean, think about this. A doctor in a hospital where he becomes the head doctor over all the emergency room doctors without ever going to medical school. But the thing I find most fascinating is when he thought he was going to get caught, he shifted and he, uh, he faked and forged a Harvard University law transcript in order to be able to take the bar, which he passed, which he passed. <laughs> and here's the thing. He passed the bar exam and then got a job at the Louisiana State Attorney General's office at the age of 19. 19! And he passed the bar exam by studying for it at 19. Think about how smart this guy was. He eventually got caught because he stole millions of dollars. He went to prison, and while they're in prison, 
The Federal Reserve figured out this guy is master at taking our money. Maybe we should use him to catch people taking other people's money. And they did. And then he got his sentence commuted. And now he's you know, head of a securities uh, company where he's making millions of dollars anyways. And I marvel at the, the ingenuity, the creativity, the boldness of this guy to do all these things. And he was faking it the whole way for his own selfish gain. And what the parable is contrasting is how come it's always those who are in the world that are worried about self that are that creative and that bold and that innovative? Why are my believers, my followers, not the same? Why are we so timid? Why are we the only, all, always ones getting ripped off and, you know, we get caught up in scams and we, we seem to be just, the people are always being taken advantage of. It's interesting when you look at the contrast in the parable itself. For me, I think, you know, we don't recognize that God's calling us to a higher standard. One of the interesting things I see on TV these days, now that the Super Bowl is today, is that there's that commercial of the Griffin brothers. How many have seen that? He's the dad's got two boys, they're twins, and one doesn't have a, an arm. I think it's on, I can't, always trying to figure out which arm it's off. He's missing a hand. And they both made the pros, but he shows how he raised them and how he drove them and how they became these great athletes. And I saw a longer video on it where this guy was, I'm thinking, how did he lift weights and become so strong? They made a device for his hand and it put it over his hand. And they're in there lifting and he was talking about how sometimes his, the stub gets so badly bloodied because of all the stuff he's doing that he's hard for him to continually train. But how great an athlete he was and how driven they were. I think about those things and I'm thinking, how many of us, I mean, and, and they're going after the worldly gain, right? I, I believe they're believers. I'm not sure. I really didn't talk about that in the little documentary I saw. But I'm thinking the sacrifice, the dedication, and the determination to grab at the world's reward, how prevalent it was in their lives. And I wonder, as us as believers, how many of us have bleeding hands or callous knees because we're on our face before God asking him for transformation and asking him to use us in a way that brings glory to his name through our lives. If crooks of the world will stop at nothing to make money, if professional athletes will practice long and hard and become good, why are we not the followers of Jesus Christ just as committed, just as zealous, just as dedicated to bring God glory through our lives? That's why Jesus said in verse 8, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In fact, he goes, they're they're smarter than you. They're shrewder than you. We're called as Christians to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We're called to be shrewd in all that we do and all that we receive. Jesus saying, as why aren't you as committed to me with such shrewdness as the sons of the people of this world who are only looking out for themselves. The people of the world are generally very resourceful in the things of the world, and so shouldn't we not be in the things of the world, but for a different purpose. Not for self, but for others. I love this quote that's in your notes. This temptation is that every sinner faces is to use the resources that he has been given to finance the wants, needs, and desires of the kingdom of self. And the more money that is in your hands, the more power this temptation tends to have. And I believe that's true because we just don't believe the word of God. When God says, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no heart can, can imagine, 
what God has prepared for those who love him, those who obey him, those that use that which they're given for his glory. We have no idea what God will do for us. See, I think God holds us accountable for how we manage money, how we steward money, because money is a tool. It is a tool or it's an idol, right? It's one of the two. And so God holds us accountable in life for how we steward the resources he does give us. That includes time, and it includes our talents. How are we using them to bring him glory? There's some life lessons to pull out of this shrewd, dishonest manager's life that I think are really applicable for us. And I call them the three laws of life management. The first one is this, and it's simple. Do your best with what you have. He did wasn't even his, but he took what he had to make the best for himself. I think the same is true for us. It doesn't matter in God's eyes how much you have. What matters is how well you handle it. Barnabas is praised for giving a large gift of land, and yet the widow is praised by Jesus for giving a couple pennies in the offering plate. I love the saying, I am but one, but I am one. I cannot do much, but I can do something. And what I can do, I ought to do. For what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I hope I will do. It's about taking action. It's about being responsible. The Bible commands us that whatever you do in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God, which includes everything we do with time, our talents, and our treasure. I read about a preacher who talked about a a guy that's always stuck with me about humility. And in the context of humility, I didn't even know the man, but he died somewhere in the 1800s. But on his tombstone, he was very specific of what he wanted to say. He was a shoe cobbler. And he was a shoe cobbler for 50 years, and his tombstone was pretty, pretty short and succinct. For 50 years, I cobbled shoes for the glory of God. That tells me this guy understood that, hey... He may have been just a shoe cobbler, but he could be a shoe cobbler for the glory of God. So you read his tombstone, you know two things about him. He loved God, and he made shoes. Great testimony. To me, I think the question here, he says in the, in the passage, is whoever can be trusted with very little could also be trusted with much. We all know that. We all work at jo- jobs where there's other people with the same job or same level of us, and some of them we can trust and some of them we don't want to work with, Right? We know who can be trusted and who can't. And let me tell you something. If you can trust somebody with something little, you'll give them something more. But if you can't trust somebody with something little, you won't give them any more than that. You'd be a fool to do that. And he's saying that and applying into the passage. So we've got to do the best with what we have. The second law I think is important is we man- what we manage is not our own. What we manage is not our own. All of us are like the stewards, handling for a while property of another. The Bible declares that earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If that is true, what we think can be lost was really never owned in the first place. In fact, I would say that for our lives. The Bible says that in Him we live and move and have our being. Life, breath, and all things come from God. And they're given to us to use for the sole purpose of bringing Him glory in our lives. Our time, our talent, our resources are all given by His grace and controlled by His providence. And if we're Christians, we have accepted the fact that He is our loving Master and He will give us what we need, but there will also be accounting for it. It's not ours, it's His, 
And he wants to know what we're going to do with it. He wants to know how we're going to handle it. Ed McMarkham tells a great story about a rich man. And he wanted to build himself a house. His best friend was a contractor. And they designed the plans and they decided on all the details. And then the, the guy went away on an extended trip. His friend, the contractor, started to build his house. But he thought, hey, he's rich. I need to make some money here. And he skimped on everything. He skimped on the walls and the floor beams and the joists. And all of it was built on a, a poor foundation so that he could maximize his profit, you know, not recognizing that his friend had entrusted this with him. And when the friend came back from his long trip, he tells him how the, he sought out the builder, and when he sought out the builder to get the keys, when the builder was handing him over the keys, he said to the man, oh, no, no, they're your keys. I didn't want you to know it, but you were building your own house. Boy, it kind of flips the story a little bit, doesn't it? To me, it's a constant warning from God's word that people who embezzle their lives from God are stuck with what they stole. That's why Proverbs says that man in his own folly ruins his life, but yet his heart rages against God. It's amazing when that happens. Life management is to do your best with what you have, and it's to know that we, what we manage is not our own. And the third life management to rule, I think, is number three, is that things we manage are really not real. Verse 11, it says, So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? The wealth of this world is not real because it doesn't last. You can't take it with you. The goods we manage now are temporary. Life's largest blunder is to act as though it were not so. Psalm 49.11, they said, Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own name. To me, this is sheer mockery. For the Bible says that one of the lusts that we lust after are the treasures of the earth. And when we die, we carry nothing with us, right? There's no U-Hauls on the back of Hearst's. I love Alexander the Great who conquered the known world and had the riches of east and west. When he died, he commanded that they carry him to his grave with his hands should be left unwrapped and outside the funeral briar so that all may see that they were empty and he went to the grave with nothing. Charlemagne was born into, uh, Char- Charlemagne at his request was buried sitting on his throne wearing his crown, robe, and jewels, and in his lap was an open Bible, and his dead finger was resting on Mark 8.36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? How true is that? Successful life management is a matter of exchanging a life you cannot keep for a life you cannot lose. It's trading the temporary goods of this world for unending, secure treasure that is guarded in heaven by God himself. No matter how much or how little we have in ability or opportunity or wealth, you can can manage your life in such a way to be really rich for eternity. One of my favorite preachers, and I know this might shock a lot of you, how many have ever heard Bishop Fulton Sheen speak? Few, right? Bishop Fulton Sping was a master order. I mean, that guy could preach. One of the greatest messages I ever heard by him was the sin of mediocrity. 
and it was really, really good. But back in the 50s, um, he was on television, and he was fully sponsored by the Admiral Corporation. And he came on, he was sandwiched between Milton Berle and Frank Sinatra. He used to get, in the early days of television, 15 to 20 million viewers a week. And he was just mesmerizing. He commanded people in terms of his presence and his teaching. In 1952, the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences named Fulton Sheen the most outstanding personality on television. What a difference between the people on television today. Interesting, when he was up there accepting his award, here's what he said. I want to thank my writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. (laughs) Brilliant. And the interviewer afterwards wanted to interview him to see what he said and to find out what drove him to be such a great preacher. Here's what he says. You've come to New York to talk to me about preaching. I cannot talk to you about preaching. I do not know what to say. Preaching is a gift. It's like a, being a beautiful woman. She's not responsible for her beauty, but she's very for, responsible for what she does with it. Everything we have is a gift from God, is it not? Our time, our talents, our treasures are all resources that are a gift from God to us to steward like beauty and brilliance, we're not responsible for having them, but we are very responsible for what we do with them and how we use them. Our salvation, our lives, are gifts of God's grace. The Bible teaches that as Christians, we can manage these gifts in a manner resulting in attaining unlimited, unfading, guaranteed riches in eternity. Worldly possessions are the Christian's stewardship, and we should be shrewd. We should be tactful. We should be focused on how we use those. If it's been wasting them in self-indulgence, we must take a warning from the parable and so employ them in deeds of useful service and mercy that when the steward is taken, stewardship is taken from us, they may have obtained for ourselves a refuge for the future. See, to me... We have to understand that God's going to hold us accountable for everything he's given us. And here's the cool thing about it. God rewards faithful stewardship, doesn't he? God rewards faithful stewardship. It's interesting because when we look at Jesus, you know, Christian really means to be little Christs. And Jesus in himself was a king, right? The Bible calls him the king. And what did he do? He got everything he had from his father. He was a steward of that which was given to him. And he used all those resources for the glory of the kingdom and to bring honor to the Father. He was also a priest. What does a priest do? A priest intercedes on behalf of the people and leads them in worship. But he was also a prophet. A prophet who proclaimed the truth of God's grace, God's word, God's judgment. And prior to Jesus coming, all three of those things were always different people. And in Christ, they all came into one person, the person of Jesus Christ. He's our king, he's our high priest, he's the ultimate prophet. And it's interesting when you think about that, if we're little Christs, what are we? He gives us resources that we need to manage in our own little kingdoms. That's why we as pastors take it very seriously on how we steward that which you give. 
So we take these resources and how we're using them. And then we all should be little priests, right? We should be all out there, you know, leading people in how to worship, interceding for them, but also prophets proclaiming the word of the Lord in the day of the Lord, right? And so here's what the, the, I look at that. I'm thinking, all right, well, the king, in my mind, he's, he's the person that supplies the priest with resources to go out and bless the people to endear themselves to the teaching of the word as he proclaims the truth as a prophet, right? I mean, you can walk up to somebody's door and when they open the door say, you're going to hell, right? You're a sinner going to hell. That's, that's one approach. Or you can use some of the resources that God has to bless people and then talk to them about being a sinner in need of a savior. <clears throat> Just different approaches. How do you steward what God gives you? It's interesting because I think we take advantage of a lot of those things. See, I think that God gives me and supplies me with money and he gives it to me, but I also think that he gives it through me. I think the same is with us, right? It's one of the reasons why we have that benevolence fund. Somebody asked at the a business meeting, what was the benevolence fund? It's money to use to bless other people who aren't asking for it but need it so that we can tell them about the love of Christ. It's called stewardship. It's about doing what's right. To me, the ultimate problem solver is how to use money to create a life that ultimately gives glory to God. To me, I think that you can either serve God, it gets down to the passage that you can't serve God and money. So either you're going to serve God and use money, or... You're going to serve money and use God. It happens so much in theology today. That's what prosperity theology is all about, right? It's about if I do this, God's going to give me more. So if I'm obedient here, God's going to bless me with more. If I give a thousand, he's going to give me somehow 10,000. And to me, that's doctrine from the pit of hell. That is using God to get the real God you want, which is money. Same thing with poverty theology, which says is, the less I have, the closer I am to God. That's not right any either, right? Grace is freely given. It's a free gift from God. And everything else we get from God is to be used for his glory. We're not to live in, in impoverished because we think that's going to bring us closer to God. And we're not to, to live in abundance because we think that's going to bring us closer to God. Or it's a statement about our faith. What he's saying is, whatever I give you, use it for your good, but ultimately for my glory. That's what stewardship is really all about. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when, and there's the key, when it fails, and it will for everyone, it will fail. One day you're going to come before God, you're going to die, you're going to be sitting there, and your money is going to be meaningless. And he says this, and when it fails... They may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Who? Who's they? I think it's a couple things. I think it's people that use your money to influence, to come and draw closer to God. But I also think it's Christ and the Father. Did you use my money to bring me glory in a life that was meant to be good and great? How did you use my resources? Because no one can serve two masters, for either you'll hate one and love the other, who will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't. It's impossible. 
but people have been trying to do it forever. And people think it's going to work and go on forever. It's a great story before the crash of 1929. Um, there was a meeting of America's most powerful men. It took place in the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Attending the meeting were the following financiers and power brokers. The president of America's largest steel company. The president of America's largest utility company. The president of America's largest gas company. The president of the New York Stock Exchange. The president of the Bank of International Settlements. The nation's greatest wheat speculator. The nation's greatest bear and speculator on Wall Street. The head of the world's greatest monopoly. And the member of President Harding's cabinet. It was said to have been a celebration of their success as well as an opportunity to plan for the future exploits and dominance. It was a meeting of the power brokers of the world on how to continue their power and their prowess. They were the captains of their respected industries and some of the most respected businessmen in the world. How did things turn out for these distinguished gentlemen? Within less than a couple decades, all of these great men had met horrific end to their careers and or lives. The president of the largest steel company, Charles Schwab, not the investment guy, that's Charles M. Schwab versus Charles R. Schwab, died bankrupt. The president of the largest utility company, Samuel Insull, died penniless. The president of the largest gas company, Howard Hobson, suffered a mental breakdown, ended up in an insane asylum. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, had just been released from prison uh, in order to die at home. The bank president, Leon Frazier, had taken his own life. The wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, died penniless. The head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivor Kruger, the match king, had also taken his life. And the member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fayle, had just been given a pardon from prison as well so that he could come home and die penniless. And for the Wall Street bear, Jesse Lairston Livermore, famous speculator in stocks and commodities, his end is perhaps the most tragic of all. The week after Thanksgiving in 1940, he walked into the Sherry Netherland Hotel in New York and had two drinks at the bar while scribing something in his notebook. And then he proceeded to the cloakroom where he sat on a stool and shot himself in the head. He was 62. He left behind $5 million out of the $100 million he once had at the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago. And he scribbled this note to his wife. My dear Nina, I can't help it. Things have been bad with me. I'm tired of fighting. Can't carry on any longer. This is the only way out. I am unworthy of your love. I'm a failure. I'm truly sorry, but this is the only way out for me. Love, Lori. They never thought it was going to end. They didn't live life in a way that was in perspective that what they had wasn't theirs. That what they had and what they were given was meant for a greater purpose. It was meant to transform not only their lives, but the lives of all those people around them. The question is not how much we have this morning. The question is, what are we doing with what we have? Are we good stewards? Are we using that for the glory of God? Or are we just creating a life for ourselves that makes us comfortable? Jesus doesn't want from us only one hour a week on Sundays, but he wants our every hour. Today's message isn't a school lesson. It's actually homework that we take home and we try to live out every day of our lives. 
The parable doesn't deal with money or commending a person for being dishonest. The parable really deals with one's commitment or his discipleship to God. Are we willing to be as bold, creative, innovative as the world is for itself, for the glory of God? Jesus wants a lifestyle that's committed to him, to his purposes, to his glory. He wants the way we act, the way we think, the way we make decisions, the way we interact with others to all be influenced (coughs) by his word on our lives. To me, stewardship is the proper management of one's resources for the glory of God. It's plain and simple. He wants us an intensity in the relationship that comes before anything else on this earth. That's why he wants the first fruits. Before we pay everybody else, we should always give God what he gives back to us. He wants to be first. He wants us to work at that commitment, not take it for granted. It's interesting because John Taylor built a, a clock called the chronosophage, which means time eater. And the interesting thing about the clock is that it's a giant grasshopper that just eats the minutes. And it's got this weird chain behind it that every hour it clamps down. And he says it's the sound of mortality, right? And he said the whole point is most people look at clocks and they're boring. This clock makes you think. And it reminds viewers not to take time for granted. Our biggest issue with time is not how we organize or plan our time. We know how to do and make to-do lists and uh, know what our needs are. But the question is, we don't have a lot of time for the things that are most important. When do you do your devotion? Is it at the end of the day when you're tired and give God the, what's left over? Or do you organize your time around Devotion time and prayer time and church, growth group, the things that are going to draw you closer to God. We need God's wisdom so we can live a life that is rich in relationship, which is why we went to the Abide series first, right? Relationship, it's about spending time with Him so that we can see how He wants us to use the resources He's given us for our good, no doubt, but for His glory. It's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to be poor. It's a sin to be irresponsible with what God gives you, whether it's great wealth or little wealth. Life is not just the few years we spend on self-indulgence and career investment. It's a privilege, a responsibility, a stewardship to be lived out according to a much higher calling. John Ruskin, a famous preacher, said this in days gone by as he watched a, a lamplighter Uh, changing and lighting all the gas lights across the street. And he said this. Now, this is what I I mean by a Christian. You ought to be able to see where he's been by the lights that he leaves burning behind him. And the question for all of us this morning is, how brightly is your light burning? How well is it funded? Is it funded at all? How much time do you spend on it? If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is in others, who will give you that which is not your own? In other words, if you're not faithful in the, in the worldly resources, how can I entrust you with spiritual resources? How can you expect that to influence the life around you? No servant can serve two masters, for either one will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money. You can't. Let me ask you one quick question before I close. Who do you compare yourself to financially? Right now, think of that person in your mind. Who do you compare yourself financially? Now I'd ask you, is that person somebody you compare yourself financially based on the house they have versus the house you have? The car they drive versus the car you drive? The clothes they wear versus the clothes you wear? The vacations they take versus the vacations you take? Because if that's the comparison, I would probably say you're not a good steward. If you compared yourself to somebody by what they give and do with their money for the glory of God, well, that says something. Man, how are we using what God gives us? How are we managing life's resources, his resources, not just for our good, but for his glory? How? That's what this series is all about. And I don't know where you're at today, but I I, I know in my own life, I look back at some people that were really close to me. My dad, uh, I grew up in a middle-class family. My dad uh, was a tile setter for most of my life, and later on he wanted to improve himself, so he went to night school, and uh, he learned how to do uh, software programming in its infancy age. And uh, he got into doing database management and a bunch of other things for a while, and then um, made you know pretty good living then. And then he gave it all up to buy a, a business down in St. Louis, Missouri. He moved in the middle of my junior year in high school. I moved during Christmas and started a new school in January. It was kind of weird. And then he bought this business, which went really, really well. He bought a caramel corn shop in a mall, right, selling popcorn. Weren't open on Sundays. And he'd make $1,500 on a Saturday selling popcorn. It was amazing. Um, he bought another one in Louisville, Kentucky, with a friend of ours. And then my mom wanted to move back to Chicago because she didn't like living in St. Louis. She lived her whole life in Chicago. She was away from her family. So my dad sold a very lucrative business and uh, bought the same kind of business in the Lewis Joliet Mall in, uh, in Joliet, right? Which was a dead mall for like six first years it was done. And he ended up going bankrupt. He had it all and he lost it all. And when my dad died, and before he died, my dad's regrets weren't, oh, I wish I would have done this or went there. My dad's regret, towards the end of his life, he took all the money that he did have, which wasn't a lot, and he used it to make things for missionaries because he knew it mattered. And I think all so often we fret over the riches of this world and we don't give God his due in the fact that these riches are provided by him for his glory, no doubt are good, but what are we doing with them? At the end of our lives, are we going to be upset that, you know, you know, we didn't get to go to Cancun or Hawaii? Let me tell you something. I don't know about you, but heaven is probably the best destination I can think of. <laughs> Nobody's going to complain about being in heaven that they didn't get to go to Hawaii or Cancun or on a cruise or any of those other things. But I do believe there's going to be some recognition of how we didn't use what God gave us to bring others with us. I may not be able to take possessions with me, but I can use what I have today to influence others to see Jesus like I see him. 
That's the reason why we talk about tithing. That's the reason why we talk about living in life that, you know, it, it gives you the ability to have extra money to bless other people with, right? The 80-20 rule. Live on 80%, give 10 to God, and then take 10 and put it in savings because you're going to need it someday. But use it all, how you live your life and the things you do to influence people towards Jesus. To be a lamplight that says, hey, this is who I follow. So I don't know if you're here today and you've never really realized that you're going to be accountable for everything God gives you, as much as he gives you, or as little. And maybe you don't know that Jesus came, he died to give us the ability to understand all these things because I didn't understand all this until I was a believer in college. I got to tell you, I think sometimes we just move through life so quickly, so fast, and we're just used to living life that we don't stop to think that eternity is here. I wish I had that clock in my house, that sound of, of mortality. That's why it says that what, better to go to a house of, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting because death is the destiny of every man and the living should take it to heart. In other words, he's saying it's better to go to a funeral today than a Super Bowl party because when you go to a funeral, you realize you're mortal. And when you realize you're mortal and you're going to go, you're going to stand before a holy and righteous God and he will take an account. Thank God he's loving. But that doesn't mean he isn't just. That doesn't mean he doesn't have expectations. And we need to live through those expectations. And I tell you what, I want to challenge us all. We should think boldly. We should think creatively. We should think in a way that makes it courageous for what we do as a ministry and not just keep going through the motions each and every week and doing this and doing this and doing this. We should think, how can we get the most out of the opportunity God gives us to reach those around us and to make a difference for the cause of Christ? It starts with knowing Him. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's a simple process. The Bible says that when you believe you're saved, which means you're saved from the ultimate penalty, which is death, which Jesus paid that price for us. Talking about stewardship. He paid the price for us so that we wouldn't have to pay it. And by believing that, what happens is he imputes his righteousness to us so that when we stand before the Father, he doesn't see all the things that we've done, all our weaknesses, all our failings, all our sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus who washes us in his blood. That's what they call the gospel, the good news. It's not about what we do, it's about what he did for us. And the Bible says if you just believe this in your heart, you'll be saved. You don't have to say a prayer. We always ask you to say a prayer so you make it real to yourself. And the prayer is simple. Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and you came to save me from my sin. Come into my life and lead me as I follow your word to be obedient. I am but one, but I am one. And as one, I can do what you call me to do. Give me the grace to do it. And for us as believers, it's time to somewhat get a wake-up call because that was the whole point of the series, Abide. When you're abiding in Christ, you start to realize the awesome, awesome responsibility we have to live according to the means he provides, but to do it in a way that shouts that Jesus is Lord from our life. Do people really know you're a Christian? Do they know when they look at you or they, do they have to figure it out? There's no secret service Christians in the Christian world. He's asking us to be bold, to be shrewd, 
to be people who use what we get for his glory. And that's the challenge for us as individuals, and it's the challenge for us as a ministry. The question is, are we up for the challenge? That's a question for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, as we go today, we're going to go to celebrations. We're going to go and, Lord, just rejoice in the things of men, in sports. and Lord, but I ask that you would just help us to recognize that today's your day, as, as is every day. And help us, Lord, to really command the resources you give us, to be able to use the time you've given us, how matter, how long, or how short, that, Lord, we rethink how we live each and every day. And how, Lord, we utilize the talents you've given us. And how, Lord, we use the financial resources you've given us. Help us, Lord, to be shrewd. To be more shrewd than the sons of this day that we made people who light shines brightly because of your calling on us. And I just pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. As we start to